We'll hear argument first this morning, number 94500, Commissioner of Internal Revenue versus Eric Schleyer and Helen B. Schleyer. Mr. Jones. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Under Section 104A2 of the Internal Revenue Code, damages received on account of personal injury or sickness are excluded from tax. This case concerns whether back wages and liquidated damages awarded under the Age Discrimination and Employment Act are excluded from tax under this statute. A closely analogous question was presented to the Court just three terms ago in United States v. Burke. That case involved application of Section 104A2 to a back wage award on a sex discrimination claim. As the Court concluded in Burke, although employment discrimination obviously may affect a personal interest, the statutory back wages remedy involved in that case compensated only the employee's economic loss. It provided no compensation for the personal components of the employee's injury, such as pain and suffering and emotional distress. What the Court concluded in Burke was that a statutory remedy that focuses in this manner on the economic rather than the personal components of the employee's injury does not yield damages on account of personal injury within the meaning of Section 104A2. The analysis applied by this Court in Burke is also applicable to the present case. Under the ADEA, there are two types of money recoveries. Back wages of the type that this Court concluded were not excluded from income in Burke and liquidated damages in an amount equal to the back wages award, but only in cases involving willful violations of the Act. Pain and suffering, emotional distress, and other similar personal components of the employee's injury are not compensable or even admissible in an ADEA suit. But you do have a tort-like remedy in the sense that you have, in effect, punitive damages, and that's tort, that's not contract. The tort-like remedy is to be a tort-like remedy for a personal injury. In deciding what was a tort-like remedy in Burke, the Court focused on the absence of any remedy for the personal components, pain and suffering. The Court also mentioned jury trials and punitive damages, but those are very weak indicators of whether the underlying claim is a tort-like claim for a personal injury. But they get us outside the simple ambit of Burke, though. No, I don't think so. Actually, Justice Souter, your concurring opinion in Burke stated what we believe is the correct interpretation of the matter. That was not the majority opinion. No, you stated in your concurring opinion. I thought it was very good, but it was not the majority opinion. What I'm trying to say is that in your concurring opinion, you said that the majority holds that what determines a tort-like claim is whether, is solely whether, the claim remedies the personal components of the employee's loss. And we think that's the correct interpretation of Burke. As I was saying, punitive damages can be awarded even in cases involving economic torts. But the indicator of whether it's a tort for a personal injury is whether it provides compensation for the personal elements of the injury. This is a common application of a very basic principle of the tax law, which is that because exclusions from income are to be narrowly interpreted, in determining whether the transaction fits within the exclusion, you have to determine whether it not only meets the form, but meets the substance of what the statute's designed to protect. And it's in that respect that the 
that the tort-like remedy has to remedy the personal component of the injury, because if it only remedies the economic component, then it may inform look like a personal injury, but in substance, it's just an economic award uh, and should be taxed just like all other economic awards. Mr. Jones, is not the case that age discrimination claims are sometimes joined with Title VII claims, for example, sex discrimination claims? It may be that there are independently violations of those two separate statutes, but, but there's I, no... My question is, if you can bring them both claims as I understand you can, and this uh, will cover settlements as well as um, litigated cases, then can't the parties manipulate themselves in and out of tax consequences by either putting the damages under Title VII in their settlement papers or under the Age Discrimination Act? Here again, you run into the resistance of the commissioner to to mere form as opposed to substance. There is an ample body of case law addressing exactly what you're describing. Uh, the secretary, the commissioner, his delegate, looks to the substance of what the claims were in making the allocation. Now, it is true that the allocation made by the parties is sort of, if you will, ordinarily respected. But if there's evidence of what you described as manipulation, certainly the commissioner would reallocate um, the award and make a deficiency based upon what he under, what she understands to be the substance of the party's claims. Well, how are Equal Pay Act cases treated in this um, in this regime that the commissioner is now administering? Uh, I have to admit that's a very difficult question for me because I'm not 100 percent confident on the, the remedial scheme of the Equal Pay Act. I think. Uh, well, let me, let me assume that it's like the Fair Labor Standards Act. I know that, like the ADA, it refers to some of the remedies under the Fair Labor Standards Act. Uh, but if it were like the Fair Labor Standards Act, where you had uh, liquidated damages uh, that were automatically awarded as additional compensation rather than as in the, under this statute as a willful, for only for willful violations, even so, uh, that compensation would not be compensation for the personal elements of the employee's loss in the commissioner's view. It's economic <laughs> compensation. It was, as this court described in the Brooklyn <coughs> Savings case, uh, it was compensation for delay in payment. Of but the there's a case benefits. where there would be a total overlap. Uh, an equal pay violation would always be a Title VII violation, would it not? I'm sorry, I really can't answer that question. I'm just, I'm not sufficiently familiar with the, the scheme of the remedies or even of the substance of the Equal Pay Act to help on that. Well, my concern is that you take this uh, panoply of anti-discrimination laws, Title VII, the Equal Pay Act, the Age Discrimination Act, the Disabilities Act, and they all seem to be remedying the same type of wrong Yet, in some cases, the award will be excludable, and in other cases, they will not. And yeah. what sense does that make? Well, it makes sense in respecting the distinctions that Congress drew between those statutory schemes. Uh, we have to be, the, the commissioner has to be concerned with the application of this revenue statute to all types of claims. And the distinction that we've drawn and that the court drew in Burke between statutes that just compensate for economic loss 
and statutes that compensate in addition for personal loss is, an import, is important in applying the statute to all types of remedies. Now, in the, in the area of employment discrimination, Congress has drawn certain distinctions between different types of remedies. We're simply respecting the distinctions that Congress drew, just as this Court did in Burke. In Burke, the Court said that a, that a Title VII recovery, which at that time compensated only for economic losses and not for personal losses, was not excluded. So I believe that the question that you're asking was really anticipated or, or was indeed the subject of Burke. That's what the Court concluded. And even if we take Title VII itself, and now in the post, uh, what, was it 1991? 1991. <clears throat> even two parts of Title VII, I believe your position is that if it's intent discrimination, then it's excludable, but if it's impact, then it's not excludable. And those two um, are often pled in the alternative. I think it's an intent case, but if I don't make it on that, then it's an impact case. It would be uh, inconsistent with Burke to regard the, the disparate impact case, which provides only for back wages, to be excluded from income. What happened in 1991 was that Congress provided additional remedies for the intentional discrimination case, the com- compensatory damages, including compensation for these personal components of loss. In doing so, the court had, I'm sorry, Congress identified that claim as in substance, as well as in form, a remedy for personal injuries. For disparate impact cases, that provides only an economic remedy, just as it does under the ADEA. So in substance, what Congress did was leave that as an economic recovery. So would you largely then leaving it, at least as far as settlement is concerned, up to the parties when you have, it could be one or could the other, could be the other, and good faith you could plead one or the other, but for settlement purposes, you'll pick the one with the advantageous tax consequences. Well, as I've already explained, the, ser- the service's only tool in that situation is to enforce what it believes to be the substance of the party's re- recoveries. Sometimes you can, you can tell. Sometimes it's relatively visible that there's been a contrivance. But if there hasn't been a contrivance, I suppose what that would suggest is that the remedy, in fact, was for the personal component of the loss, if, the, if both were available. Now, if, if I could get to this case, um, the courts below agreed with the framework of analysis that I've described. Uh, they differed only in a conclusion that the liquidated damages component of the Age Discrimination Act recovery was, in a, was an indirect implied form of compensation for the personal component of the employee's loss. Uh, but that, deci- that conclusion is not correct. In TWA versus Thurston, uh, the court explained that ADA liquidated damages are a double damages device designed to punish and to, to deter willful violations of the act. The court explained that the liquidated damages for willful violations of the ADA are a direct substitute for the criminal sanctions for willful violations of the Fair Labor Standards Act from which the ADA remedies were largely drawn. So the ADA liquidated damages remedy is not uh, an automatic award uh, given as additional compensation in each case uh, as it was under the pre-1946 provisions of the Fair Labor Standards Act that were involved in the, in the court's decisions in Brooklyn Savings and Overnight Motor. And in Thurston, in distinguishing those older FLSA cases, the court specifically pointed out that liquidated damages for willful violations are a, uh, 
sanction or a substitute for criminal sanctions and are punitive in nature. Now, the Seventh Circuit in Downey added something very useful on, on, on this topic. What they pointed out was even if you could regard uh, liquidated damages for willful violations as somehow compensatory rather than punitive in nature, they clearly aren't compensation for the personal components of the employee's loss. The availability and amount of liquidated damages under the ADEA has no bearing whatever on the existence or amount of the personal component of the employee's loss. ADA liquidated damages are not available on account of the underlying injury. They're available on account of the employer's improper state of mind, his willful misconduct. And when they're awarded, the amount of the recovery uh, is limited solely by the economic loss of the employee. The personal uh, components of that loss are given no consideration. In, in the law of torts generally, in the case law on torts and in the uh, treatises, do, do, do we often refer to liquidated damages. I always think of that as a contract uh, concept. Well, liquidated damages, I think, came out of contracts. Uh, but I think that what we have to, what Lorillard versus Pons is helpful in understanding what's going on here. In Lorillard versus Pons, the court pointed out that when FLSA remedies were drawn into the ADEA, to the extent that they were drawn in without change, they should be given a similar interpretation. But to the extent they're drawn in with a change, they should be given a different interpretation. And, and in Lorillard versus Pons, the court specifically pointed out that liquidated damages under the FLSA had meant something, but now it's something different under the ADEA. I think that what happened was that the term liquidated damages just came along from the FLSA, but the, it, but the concept was changed into a substitute for the criminal remedy. Uh, I well, mean, liquidated the, damages in traditional contact, contract law often means a sum that uh, is awarded because the damage, the actual damages will be very difficult to assess, doesn't it? That's correct. I, I think as an ordinary contract remedy, that would be the... Uh, the concept that it addresses. But as I pointed out, when it came along into the ADEA, it really changed its nature. And as the Court said in Thurston, it became a punitive in nature and a substitute for criminal sanctions. Mr. Mr. Jones, as you know, I didn't, in, in, uh, in, uh, in Burke did not, did not think that uh, your regulation uh, making the line, uh, the tort-like line, uh, was within the statute, but, but we held that it was. You've given two reasons for, for saying that this is, uh, that this is not tort-like. One is that it's only uh, on the intentional uh, violation that these damages are awarded. But s some torts uh, require, require willfulness as well. The tort of assault, for example, you're entitled to damages from that, but it's a purely willful tort. If you do not show willfulness, you do not recover. Well, the point that we're dis — the distinction I'm trying to make when I talk about willful is whether the resulting award is compensation for the underlying injury or compensation or, — or rather not compensation, but punishment for the employer's misconduct. Well, you could say the same about assault. I don't know whether you're punishing the injury or punishing the bad intent. You're, they both have to be there, and it's the same here. I think the difference is that when the statute refers to an injury, I think it's in the legal context of a legal injury. Uh, 
in an assault, the legal injury isn't just the harm. It's, it's the occurrence of the conditions that give rise to the action. Punitive damages are not based upon the legal injury to the defendant. They're based on punishment of the improper state of mind of the defendant. I think These I said that backwards. These aren't punitive damages. They're liquidated damages, which, as the Chief uh, just suggested, measure uh, are given in lieu of, because damages are hard to measure, not punishment. Sometimes, but I think what I was trying to point out is it's reasonably clear that in dragging this term along into the ADEA, it wasn't describing uh, the contractual uh, historical notion of liquidated damages. Uh, that's exactly what the Court held in Thurston, indeed, that this was a punitive sanction designed to deter and punish. It changed its nature as it moved along. But as the Seventh Circuit explained, whether you regard it as compensation or as punishment, it doesn't compensate for the personal components of the loss. It's like, it's like Burke. It, 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 it doesn't have the form or the substance of compensation for the personal components of the employee. What about a state tort statute that says, uh, we, uh, henceforward for certain types of torts, let's say to, uh, torts by a ski resort. Some western states have, uh, have limited their, uh, their, uh, tort laws in order to enable ski resorts not to be sued out of existence. Suppose, uh, suppose a state, uh, says that henceforward, uh, uh, negligence recoveries against uh, ski resorts cannot include any uh, pain and suffering component. You can get compensated for your for your economic loss from. Uh, now, does that become a, a non-tort? Uh, it becomes. It, it that's a question that I think the commissioner would answer. It becomes a non-tort-like remedy for a personal injury. Right. That's not what I would consider. Tort. I mean, I don't know what we meant, what you meant by tort-like. You you invented the. I mean, the I not that's right. It is, Mr. Jones. I think the IRS yes, and invented the, this tort-like thing, but I would I would not consider the touchstone of tort-like to be whether uh, whether you are entitled to pain and suffering. Well, again, you have to focus on just not tort-like, but the the context of this is tort-like remedy for a personal injury. If we if we unleash the word tort-like from the context of personal injury, then we've included, I suppose. Uh, perhaps antitrust remedies, perhaps securities laws, anything that's not based on contract. Uh, what, the, what the regulation does is it directs the distinction to be made between whether the statute is just providing an economic remedy or, or is providing a remedy for the personal components of the loss. Uh, there are two other points that I'd like to briefly make. Um, may, may I take it that the Commissioner then, despite uh, Justice Scalia's opinion, um, had no occasion to rethink whether it should maintain this tort or tort-type rights regulation. I mean, if you just the, stat, the words of the statute, personal injuries or sickness, have been expanded in that regulation, but that, that is the Commission's position that tort or tort-like rights is, um, is, is the regime, right? In, in two rulings issued by the service, both before and after Burke, the agency has concluded that a statutory remedy that provides simply back wages and liquidated damages in an equal amount and that does not, like an ordinary tort, provide compensation for personal components of the loss is not excluded from income under the regulation. It is not a tort-like remedy because it lacks that element of the personal component of loss. But is uh, it not true that uh, even if it were not a tort-like remedy, if it's a remedy for personal injuries, 
you still get the exclusion. I would say it's workman's compensation or something like that. Workman's compensation comes in directly under a different part of 104A. You, and, in fact, you don't and have to. What about an insurance recovery, say, for, on account of personal recovery, injury? A mere accident comes in under 104A3. So it doesn't have to be a tort is what I'm trying to under say. Under 104A2, it has to be damages on account of personal injury, right. which the service interpreted to require there to be a tort or tort-like compensation for the personal injury. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's easy to overrun the various components of the statute. Here we're just talking about the one. And, and in deciding whether this kind of recovery has both the form and the substance of a recovery on account of personal injuries, the service is focused on whether it provides just an economic compensation like any other economic recovery or does something more. Now, the service's interpretation has been, uh, is a reasonable one. Uh, it's consistent with Burke. Indeed, it adopts Burke. Uh, as the Court said in National Mufflers Dealers, it's important to give deference to the agency's interpretation to ensure that in these areas of limitless factual variation, like cases are treated alike. What exactly? You, you, you've put your finger on just the part that's bothering me, that I don't understand this tort-like notion. What's wrong with saying, sure, the ski resort is a tort? Now, you'd have slander of an accountant. That's a tort, even though there are no damages other than economic damages. But you also said, why do we have to bother characters? Say, everything's a tort. Antitrust is a tort if it's not contract. Still... The damages have to be on account of personal injury. That's so you argued both things. So my question really is, isn't this effort to say, is it really a tort or is it really something else? Just a waste of time. It, it, it's not so much a waste of time as, as I will concede that it is, it tends to create confusion. So why not say, forget IRS reg to the contrary notwithstanding, forget whether characteristically it's called under ancient history in Blackstone or something tort or has some other name. Call it a tort. Just look to see whether the damages are on account of personal injury. I'm not saying I agree with what I've just said. I understand. I just want to get your reaction. Well, my reaction to that is that the service since 1960 has applied this regulation to pursue the goal that you've described. Now, it could be that it wasn't necessary for that purpose, but it was adopted for that purpose, and it's been interpreted in that fashion. Uh, it seems to add a — it adds one element of direction to the inquiry, and that is whether the recovery uh, under a tort-like model includes compensation for things like pain and suffering and emotional distress, which are tort-like concepts. Uh, the um, — the current proliferation of conflicting decisions among the courts of appeals really provides a compelling justification for uh, deference to the agency's interpretations because currently, instead of deferring to the agency's rulings, uh, the courts are independently struggling to determine what is a tort-like uh, remedy. If, in fact, the remedy in a Title VII case, let's say, is just back pay and nothing further is awarded, it's still excludable under the current position of the service, is it not? If it's a Title VII remedy that for a portion of Title VII that provides additional compensation, then it qualifies as a tort-like remedy. Even though, in fact, the jury awards only, only back pay. Only back pay. And, and I think I can explain that, but it's, it's, it's complicated. The, the, in, in evaluating the loss involved in a personal injury, 
the award of the lost stream of income is a relevant indicator of what was lost, of the value of what was lost. And so we can't ignore, the service can't You're ignore. talking in the traditional talk, I'm personal talking injury in, type talk. I'm talking but in the here you've got sense. the exact same thing that you had in Burke, except now the statute says, in addition to back pay, we're not measuring the losses if we were talking about personal injury, automobile accident. It's straight back pay. No, it's straight back pay less whatever earnings you made in the interim. It's sort of like the lost flow of income. There's John, what, what do you do about my, you remember my ski resort example? Yes, sir. Which you said isn't a tort because there's no. Uh, suppose uh, someone's injured under such a statute and is not killed, but is injured to such a degree that the person becomes ill and cannot go to work. That comes under this provision, though, doesn't it? Because it's personal injury or sickness. Sickness is okay. If the only damages you get are for your illness, it's okay. But if it's a personal injury, somehow it has to be tort-like. That's a very strange result. That sounds correct. And I also want to emphasize... It sounds correct that it's strange, or it sounds... sounds, It sounds correct that your literal interpretation of the statute makes some sense. But what I want want to emphasize is that the hypothetical that you've postulated doesn't really have enough information in it for me to feel like I can offer a firm view of how the service would react to it. I think that it's that there's a lot of slippage in, in the way you've described it. I cannot it. imagine why any interpretation which applies a different, a different test when the person just gets sick and, and is out of work for that reason and uh, a, a, another test where the person loses the job uh, by reason of the same tort. I, I just, it seems to me weird. There's one other point that I just have to talk about briefly because it's a very important point to the Commissioner, and that is that liquidated damages should be excluded from income for an additional reason, which is that their award only for willful violations is analogous to punitive damages and private fines. In Commissioner versus Glenshaw Glass, the Court concluded that damages on account of personal injury are by definition compensatory only. Uh, Chief Justice Warren stated for the Court in Glenshaw Glass that punitive damages are not akin to a return of capital, which was the original justification for the statute, uh, and that they do not represent compensation on account of 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 personal injuries. These statutes are of the type that the Court has traditionally said are to be narrowly construed. As we've described in our brief, consistent with the text, the structure, and the history of the statute, it should be interpreted only to exclude compensation on account of income, on account of injuries, and should not be interpreted to exclude punitive awards made on account of the employer's or the defendant's improper state of mind. Uh, I would like to reserve the balance of my time for rebuttal. Very well, Mr. Jones. Uh, Mr. Joyce? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. One of the central problems of this case was identified in Justice Ginsburg's questioning with regard to the 1991 Civil Rights Amendments and the statutes that emerged from that legislation. In fact, this case presents the issue, what sense does it make to treat plaintiffs under the ADEA differently from plaintiffs under other similar federal anti-discrimination statutes. As I said, the statutes that emerged from that legislation are a unified scheme embodying congressional policy against discrimination, against racial, sexual, disabilities discrimination, as well as against age discrimination. 
the fundamental principle of the tax system that similarly situated taxpayers should be taxed similarly. Burke was a Title VII claim, wasn't it, a pre-1991 Title VII? It was, Mr. Chief Justice. And you're not quarreling with that decision, I take? Uh, not at all. In fact, we have relied on Burke in all of the lower courts. The fundamental principle that similarly situated taxpayers should be taxed similarly finds direct application in the post-1991 federal anti-discrimination scheme. If a cluster of laws <coughs> enacted by Congress are now being interpreted by the Internal Revenue Service to allow for tax-free damages, as they are in Revenue Ruling 9388, what sense does it make to take one element out of that cluster, which Congress and I think an objective observer would regard as similar, and treat it differently? Well, but Congress treats that uh, the statutes are not fungible. The remedies under this statute are different from the remedies under other anti-discrimination statutes. They are That's different. Congress' decision, not ours. They are different, uh, uh, Justice Stevens. But the remedies, and I, I emphasize the remedies because Burke did speak in terms of remedial schemes, the remedies of the ADEA are much more similar to the remedies under post-1991 Title VII and the Disabilities Act than any of those laws' remedies are to the paradigms of unlimited state court well, liability. Get, you can get punitive damages under the Title VII as amended, can't you? Yes, you can, Your Honor. Unlimited, and you can't get those here? Uh, if I may correct you, Your Honor, punitive damages, as well as pain and suffering under post-1991 law, are kept. One can obtain uh, a, a maximum under any circumstances of $300,000. Yes, but that, you can get $300,000 if your actual damages are only $20. Uh, that is correct, Your Honor. Whereas you can't do that under this statute. Uh, that is true, Your Honor. So the statutes are not all exactly alike. That's I, all I'm suggesting. Congress has got a bunch of different schemes, and I think we have to look at each one separately. Then. I agree with Your Honor that they are not alike, just as Title VII's remedial scheme is not exactly the same as the Disabilities Act. So maybe the problem is not the Internal Revenue Code or the, or the IRS. Maybe, maybe you should re reformulate your principle that persons similarly injured should be compensated similarly. That seems a reasonable proposition to me, and maybe that's the source of the difficulty. Congress well, has simply provided a, uh, an irrational dif differential, uh, differential in compensation. But if, if, that, if that produces an irrational differential in, t in tax law, the, the problem is, is with, the, with the origin of, of, of the relief. Uh, Your Honor, we don't feel that there is an irrational difference between the ADEA and Title VII or the Disabilities Act. As I said, those three statutes provide for a much more similar remedial scheme. As an example, one can easily imagine a plaintiff under the ADEA who has a large lost earnings damage and who, upon a demonstration of willful misconduct, will receive far in excess of a plaintiff with similar lost earnings under Title VII or the Disabilities Act. That illustrates that these remedial, that the range of damages in these three statutes are roughly comparable. And in fact, Mr. Schleyer's damages, his liquidated damages, fall somewhere in the mid-range between the minimum of $50,000 required in some circumstances under Title VII and the absolute maximum of 300000 In other words, one could imagine a person with lost earnings under the ADEA in excess of $300,000. If that person shows willful misconduct, that person will receive more than $300,000 in liquidated damages. Yes, but there's another difference that keeps running through my mind. In the nature of the discrimination is somewhat different. Racial discrimination under constitutional principles we look at very harshly. Gender discrimination somewhere in between. And, and age discrimination, if there's any rational basis for it, it's okay. It's not, it doesn't have the same insult associated with it as these other forms of discrimination do. So it's uh, less of a tort-type uh, kind of discrimination. 
Your Honor, I'm in a difficult position to say whether a plaintiff who is a victim of age discrimination feels less hurt than other plaintiffs. I recognize that there is not a constitutional prohibition on age discrimination, nor is there one on gender discrimination. However, Congress and this Court, in numerous decisions such as EEC v. Wyoming, Western Airlines v. Criswell, has recognized the dimension of personal injury in this age discrimination statute. And that much is clear. There is a personal injury here. The law could not produce an award without it. The Internal Revenue Service concedes as much in this case. There is an injury in this type of case. The Disabilities Act comes under — is it under the Title VII pattern rather than the age discrimination pattern? Is it not the Americans with Disabilities Act? Your Honor, it is probably closer to the Title VII pattern. It is not identical, but it is much more similar to Title VII. But it has a broader panoply of remedies than the Age Discrimination Act. Broader, Your Honor, yes. Perhaps not necessarily deeper. But it, like the remedies under the Title VII, permits for a separate count of pain and suffering and a separate count of punitive damages. To the extent that the core remedy under the Age Discrimination Act is making up for lost wages, why should that escape income tax? Your Honor, the reason for that is the reason which I think has ultimately been recognized by the Internal Revenue Service itself in Revenue Ruling 9388. Once you have a tort or a tort-like cause of action, as the regulations state, once that occurs, any damages, as the statute says, are excludable. And the IRS now explicitly applies that principle to lost earnings or back pay under Title VII, the Disabilities Act, et cetera. The mere fact that the damages are measured by the earnings the tort victim would have received does not prevent the exemption under Section 104. Well, the statute doesn't talk about tort-like injuries, does it? No, Your Honor. The statute talks about personal injuries. Personal injuries. The regulations define that to mean an action prosecuted involving tort or tort-type rights. Well, certainly, if you just look at the term personal injuries, you think of it, you know, in terms of the sort of thing that comes as a result of, say, a typical automobile accident. You break your arm. You know, you can't walk right afterwards. Not the sort of damages that you're talking about. Your Honor, historically, it is true that personal injuries have emerged from the tort law. And many things that we would recognize as torts or tort-like now did not exist or would not have been recognized as causes of action in 1919 when the statute was enacted. But as I say, the statute doesn't say tort-like. That is correct, Your Honor. So I don't know that it's necessarily correct to say that anything called tort-like is a personal injury under the statute. The Internal Revenue Service has said that, and we may well choose to follow their regulation, but certainly it doesn't inexorably follow from the statute. We actually agree with that, Your Honor, because we believe the Court in Burke emphasized not only must there be a tort-like character in the law, there has to be a personal injury. If there's no personal injury, a business tort might qualify, and that's clearly beyond the reach of this exemption. There must be, if you like, a two-phase test or a two-step test. There must be a personal injury. Now, what distinguishes a narrow class of discrimination laws from certain other causes of action is that Congress has identified by law certain injuries that are deemed to occur when an act of intentional discrimination occurs. A person is — a person's intangible security is invaded with respect to a fundamental feature of his or her identity, and that's what happens in unlawful racial, gender, age discrimination. What about the tort of malicious interference with contractual relations? Yes, Your Honor. 
that tort, which that is, really a, is economic, isn't it? That is, that is correct, Your Honor. And that tort is not necessarily within the reach of this exemption. If one business sues another business citing that tort, there may be no personal injury. Well, what if, what if it's, I'm, I'm a defendant in action like that, or a plaintiff in action, and, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a company. I'm simply an individual. Uh, I certainly sustain some sort of injury. You may very well have, but I question under your hypothetical whether it is a personal injury. If it is, then maybe we have something to apply here. But if not, the statute cannot be invoked. Why, why isn't it? It interferes with my, my right to contract, right? Uh, a right to contract is... Is that any less personal than a, a, a right uh, to be employed regardless of my age or to be employed regardless of my sex? Or? Well, Your Honor, I, I think the, what you're getting at may be that the statute uses the term personal injury. Personal injury both now and historically has been something of a term of art. It does well, not. I think so, but we've abandoned that. In fact, it doesn't just say personal injury. It says personal injury or sickness. But we've abandoned that. Yes, you said Honor. it means any, you know. I mean, I would have thought it meant what the chief says. Uh, uh, suggest. And this is where uh, the Threlkeld case, for example, yeah. provides a guide. In that case, which is a lower court opinion, obviously, uh, cited by this court in Burke, Threlkeld emphasized there must be some type of fundamental injury to the human identity. To the human identity? Yes, Your Honor. Something that rises to a level of an intangible or a physical invasion of security. Found for me. I, I don't. Sure, you I get that kind of injury when you fire everybody over seventy years old. That's that kind of injury. What on earth does that mean? Yeah. Uh, your honors have asked two questions. Over seventy would not be within the reach of the age statute. Okay. Uh, that may very well be, your honor. If you decide to single them out for that act and violate the law, you have undoubtedly injured them. Uh, as, as to what it means. Yes, but have you injured them in any, anything other than an economic way? They lose their job or they get a lower Oh, I, I, I think you may very well have. Obviously, each case may be slightly different, but when you fire somebody because he or she is determined arbitrarily to be too old, you're telling that person he no longer is a productive human being. It's time to retire, go out to pasture. You're no good. And that's the injury we think Congress was aiming at. Do, do you want to say something about the third, what seems like a third part of the statute? That is, you've talked about the tort-like nature of the suit. And I might go along with that for the sake of argument. The IRS reg defines the words damages received, right? And so the damages have to be damages from a tort-like suit. Yes, Your Honor. And also, it says there's somewhere in this background personal injury. And I'll go along with that. This is a terrible insult, physical and psychological harm, etc. I'll go along with that. But it also says, and the IRS reg doesn't address this, that the damages in the tort-like suit have to be on account of the personal injury. And so if, in fact, you have a tort suit, but the state, say, limits the damages in that tort suit so you can't recover for the personal aspect of the harm, but only the lost wages when the accountant was insulted and yes, slander liable, well, how can that be on account of the personal injury? Uh, let me explain, Your Honor. In, in that situation, the state circumscribes a remedy or recognizes a cause of action that does not have a separate count for pain and suffering. Is that tort-like? Is it within the reach of the exemption? I say yes. It, let's assume it's tort-like. Absolutely. Slander of an accountant is a tort. And let's also assume that in the background, the poor accountant is suffering like mad, as people do when they're slandered or fired. But if you limit the damages just to the lost wages, for example, how is it damages on account of the personal injury? 
uh, on account of, uh, perhaps somewhat different from the phrase personal injuries, is not a precise term of art. However, yeah, it, but it still suggests that these personal injuries had something to do with what is correct, account of, and now that's the part I'd like you to address. There is a, a loose notion of causation underlying that term. If there had been no personal injury, there would be no damages. That is what we believe Congress Simply but for. And then do you have authority for that, that it means only but for? Uh, I believe uh, that was not addressed in the 1918 legislative history. I think most courts that have adjudicated this, and the IRS itself now seems to be relying on this idea in Revenue Ruling 9388, where it held that back pay alone in a statute that is otherwise within the coverage of this exemption is excludable. So if you had a statute that was uh, uh, as Your Honor is hypothesizing, otherwise satisfying the elements of this, there is sufficient causality to cause the measure of the damage that is expressed in terms of lost earnings to be within the reach of it, because the statute does say any damages on account. So once there is a personal injury, any means any. That is what we believe in. We well, believe never, the never, never mind the measure, whether it's measured precisely by the personal injury. <laughs> Does, do you have to demonstrate that the personal injury has occurred? Do you have to show that the individual knew about the age discrimination? Uh, which individual? The, the individual being discriminated against in an age discrimination case. Uh, you do not have to show necessarily that the person That's was the only aware personal of that. injury. That's the only personal injury. The, the feeling that the accountant had of being less of a human being, personal right. identity, whatever you say. Yes, Your Honor. That injury... The person doesn't even know about it, but, but he's still entitled to damages, isn't he? He is, Your Honor, because... With no personal injury. So it's not even but for. Uh, I, I disagree in one respect, Your Honor, respectfully. Uh, Congress presumes an injury to occur when invidious discrimination in violation of one of these classifications Oh, I occurs. see. So it, does, so it doesn't have to be on account of. It does, Your Honor, because there has to be an act of discrimination. There must be an act of discrimination, and there must be injury in this case. And I don't understand your first answer. You're charging, in an age discrimination case, you're charging the employer with discriminating against you because of your age. So how, do you, how can you not know about it? Well, I think uh, Justice Scalia is hypothesizing a case in which it is quite possible a plaintiff may not be aware that the act is a violation of the ADEA. At least that was my interpretation. Well, by the time the complaint is filed, she surely does. It, it is highly likely that by that point the plaintiff will be aware of it. When, if, if you're right that this, uh, these damages under the Age Discrimination Act should be treated just like damages for um, disparate treatment under the Title VII, and then um, we come to the jury, and the question that the judge asked counsel, he says, well, this is excludable from income, I understand. Therefore, I will tell the jury that the amount that they're going to award to the extent it covers back pay will not be taxed. Would you agree that if you're right, that that should be the consequence? Uh, yes, Your Honor. In fact, I also think that's the law generally, that uh, the jury will be informed of that. Well, isn't there an irony then that the one who ends up benefiting from this is the tortfeasor? Because the, de the jury will say, oh, well, we can, we can give less because what we give is not going to be subject to tax. Uh, it is possible that the tortfeasor in an age case, just like the tortfeasor in any tort case, may have to pay less to the victims. But doesn't the judge also charge, doesn't the judge, doesn't the judge also charge that they're supposed to make him whole or her whole with respect to back pay wages? Uh, that, would, that would probably be the charge in an age case, Your Honor. Uh, if, if, uh, if I could emphasize, Justice Ginsburg, in any tort case, 
Uh, it is possible, we don't know in advance whether there will be any incidental benefit to the tortfeasor, but the tortfeasor may have to pay less money. If the victims are in a very strong bargaining position, they will want a certain sum, they will have a very strong case, and if the employer or defendant has to pay that, uh, but is relieved in some sense because the primary beneficiaries are relieved of that tax, we believe that is, a, that is an unintended incidental benefit, not primarily before, the, uh, before Congress. The uh, regulations we emphasize, Your Honors, must be interpreted as they speak in terms of tort-like laws, and this illustrates why they must be interpreted flexibly. It is not simply tort laws that existed in 1919 or 1956 or any particular date, but a range of tort laws that must be accommodated under this statute. That would include not only presumed damages under various state laws, the circumscribed tort remedies hypothesized by some members of the Court today, but even such causes of action as wrongful death. Wrongful death is a good example of a statute or a remedy that has, in many cases, no allowance for pain and suffering. It is, however, frequently re uh, recognized by the IRS as being within the coverage of this exemption. For example, uh, Revenue Ruling 84108 recognizes as much. Well, since Lord Campbell's Act and Lord Tenderden's Act, wrongful death does ha have to compensate for pain and suffering, doesn't it? I mean, those were changes in the 19th century, I thought. Uh, not all — I believe not all wrongful death statutes do that, Your Honor. Just as one example, uh, we cited a Colorado statute that was enacted in our brief. Uh, the Federal Employers' Liability Act also, I believe, does not provide a separate count for pain and suffering. And that illustrates a recognized tort-like frame namely those wrongful death statutes, that would apparently not come within the coverage, even though the government has otherwise recognized such statutes to be tort-like for purposes of the Section 10482 exemption. Uh, <clears throat> incidentally, illustrating, we feel, another inconsistency between the government's litigating position in this case and its published revenue rulings. Uh, Your Honor, what kind of statutes are those now? Wrongful death statutes and any others? Wrongful death is a particularly a clear example of it, Your Honor. Uh, the ones that I mentioned, the Colorado statute we cited in our brief, the uh, wrongful death statute in Revenue Ruling 84-108, the Federal Employer's Liability. Do, or do you know for a fact that the government has allowed uh, uh, deductible or, or non-reporting of, uh, of, of income under those particular statutes? That well, it's, it's my understanding that the Revenue Ruling 84-108, which dealt with two wrongful death statutes, one is a Virginia statute and one is Alabama, the Virginia statute, according to the ruling, states that there shall be compensation only for actual damages. Uh, there wasn't a great deal of detail. The government, in the course of its analysis in that ruling, cited the Norfolk and Western versus Leopold case, which is under the Federal Employer's Liability Act. That's cited in our brief. Uh, that, that statute, as well, does not allow for pain and suffering. The government, nevertheless, in Revenue Ruling 84-108, concluded that the Virginia statute Yes, but isn't, it, isn't that com commanded, forget the, re the regulation from it, wouldn't the plain language of the statute have compelled that result if it's on account of personal injuries? Uh, well, we think so, Your Honor, uh, but the government has in, uh, taken the position for this case that there is a, an absolute prerequisite under the Burke analysis that there be a count for something like pain or suffering. Well, maybe, maybe, maybe that's explainable because that's real personal injuries. Yeah. Real personal injuries, you can get it for anything, but those personal injuries that qualify as such because they are tort-like, uh, then, then you make the investigation. I think that's what Justice Stevens is suggesting. Uh, that may be. Uh, we feel that that, uh, that does we not — We didn't say that in Burke. Like was the only category, I guess. 
the, nevertheless, we feel that illustrates why the government's insistence on the presence of a pain and suffering count, as, you, as it were, uh, is improper, is incorrect. <laughs> Uh, indeed, the, uh, the, go- the government's position in its, in its reply brief most explicitly seeks deference from this Court with respect to its view. Uh, there is, however, no regulation addressing the age discrimination statute. There's no revenue ruling. There's no published announcement. Uh, what the government is seeking deference to in this case is its litigating position. Well, d- isn't it entitled to deference in interpreting its own regulation? Uh, it, is, it is entitled to deference with respect to agency views that, first of all, interpret a statute to which uh, Congress no, has expressed. My question was, isn't it entitled to deference in interpreting its own regulation? Uh, within limits, it is, Your Honor. It, in this case, we feel the government is not entitled to deference because, first of all, its litigating position is what it's asking deference to. That position has, is apparently at odds with uh, not only with statements in the Court below, but published revenue rulings. And well, furthermore, has it been inconsistent in its... Uh, interpretation of its regulations as applied to this particular case? Oh, I think so, Your Honor. Uh, just as an example, uh, uh, the government does not seem to uh, have a, a consistent, completely consistent view as to whether liquidated damages are exclusively punitive or not. Uh, as part of its argument, the government has stated that the Portal to Portal Act transformed FLSA liquidated damages, therefore affecting ADEA liquidated damages. Well, 25 years ago, it said something different. Well, if, if the government, if it turned out that we felt the government were consistent in interpreting its regulation, would it then be entitled to deference in this case? Uh, from what I've heard, uh, no, because the government is going contrary to the decision in Burke. Burke, uh, I, would, uh, I would, just for sake of recapitulation, emphasize that there must be some uh, elements of a tort-like remedial scheme in addition to a personal injury. The Court singled out jury trials because of the importance of damages. It emphasized a range of non-wage damages. It also cited the existence of punitive damages as one of the indicia. Yeah, but that, that was on the tort side. But uh, the, certainly it did not dispense with the requirement that the injuries be personal injuries. Absolutely not, Your Honor. The Court in that case, and uh, we, we think in other cases, has presumed certain personal injuries to occur in an act of invidious discrimination. And the government has conceded as much here. What Burke uh, said in addition, and in this respect, uh, adding an additional test beyond that advanced by Justices O'Connor and Thomas in their dissent, was that there must be an additional tort-like frame. That frame, the court in Burke, derived from the remedial scheme. And those elements of the remedial scheme found to be absent in the Burke case are present here. There are jury trials. There is a range of non-wage damages. And depending on how one weighs the compensatory versus punitive aspects of the ADEA, there, in fact, is a punitive role for ADEA liquidated damages. And so that brings this case squarely within the analysis of the majority in Burke. Well, may I suggest another reading? Um, was, Was both the emphasis in Burke on jury trial and the emphasis on some range of headings of damages uh, intended to point to a case like the typical tort personal injury case in which the jury has a considerable degree of discretion in determining uh, what something is worth, e.g., what pain and suffering is worth. Whereas in a case like this, number one, as you said a moment ago, I presume the jury must be instructed with respect to, to the, uh, the wage aspect of the claim uh, that they are simply to make the, the claimant whole. Uh, which is pretty much a mathematical exercise if the jury uh, follows its instructions. And number two, uh, assuming that it finds willfulness, 
the willfulness, once again, is pretty much a matter of math once the wage claim has been, uh, has been given a figure. Isn't that correct? Yes. And if that is so, then is this really the kind of case uh, which the Court had in mind when it was pointing to the sort of discretionary valuation uh, that juries make? And if the answer is no, then perhaps even though uh, the jury and some panoply of remedy uh, features are satisfied here, this still wouldn't fall within what Burke was getting at. Well, the reason I think that is not the case, uh, Justice Souter, is, uh, first of all, the Court did cite the Rickle case, an age discrimination appellate decision. And the Court also had as a background, uh, as it were, the post-1991 amendments, showing how the addition of certain features to a remedial scheme can apparently transform the character of the damages. There is uh, a role for the jury in the age case. The jury not only finds whether discrimination may occur, but the jury has a role in the determination of willfulness on the part of the defendant. As this Court noted in Burke, punitive damages may be an important part of tort law, both historically and currently. And so that is why, why, why I can't speak precisely as to what the Court may have had in mind in its majority opinion. We feel that it was looking largely beyond uh, the Title VII statute at issue in that case. It was looking for a, as it said, a range of damages. It cited, again, uh, I think on page 1873 of the opinion, the importance of having additional damages, including other consequential damages. But here the range is simply the liquidated damages double the back pay award. That is right, Your Honor. The range is one other remedy. It is one other remedy which, under prior decisions of this Court, Brooklyn Savings Overnight Motor, uh, was held to denote uh, too difficult to measure, to obscure, except for estimate, by liquidated damages. But if the, if the, court, thought that, if the court thought that jury discretion, uh, in a different sense, uh, discretion in weighing evidence to determine, in the first place, whether there had been a discrimination, and in the second place, whether it was willful, was important, uh, then there would have been no need, I suppose, to emphasize the range of damages, too, and when you get to the range of damages, isn't that a signal that what the Court was really talking about was a discretion that goes beyond the kind of discretion that we talk about in fact-finding uh, and points to well, the kind of discretion uh, that, that we speak of in terms of, of valuation, uh, which does not seem to be present here? Uh, I understand Your Honor's point. I still don't think that's what the Court really had in mind, because uh, if that were so, various other presumed damages, such as defamation, defamation per se, that doctrine would automatically be excluded from the reach of this statute. And as I indicated earlier, even other tort-like statutes, such as wrongful death, are automatically uh, beyond the reach unless they provide the separate count. No, but in the presumed damages case, damages are presumed, but the jury has to set the amount, uh, whereas here the jury does not have that kind of discretion. The amount we're talking about in cases like this, if the jury follows its instructions, is essentially a matter of the, the arithmetic. It is a matter of arithmetic once there's a finding of willfulness. Yeah. And, and as to whether, for that matter, Congress uh, decided to leave the apparent equation of the degree of reprehensibility to the existence of damages, uh, the Court in the uh, Schmidt case, for example, concluded that that was, in fact, what was going on, that there is a, a, a presumed association with the degree of bad conduct on the part of the tortfeasor with those additional damages suffered by the plaintiff. And, and there is a role, a very distinct role for jury discretion in that case, Your Honor. Uh, Mr. Chief Justice, if there are no further questions, I see the remainder of my time. Thank you, Mr. Joyce. Mr. Jones, you have two minutes remaining. <clears throat> Thank you. 
just briefly, Justice Ginsburg, I wanted to point out that the irony that you referred to, it may be even broader than you noted, uh, in addition to the fact that, uh, that under Norfolk and Western, if the uh, recovery were tax-exempt, the jury sh- should be re- instructed of that, is the fact that under Brooklyn Savings, uh, if, the, if the reward were excluded from tax, it would be regarded as compensatory, and therefore prejudgment interest would not be permitted. Uh, currently, prejudgment interest is allowed on ADEA claims because the liquidated damages component is regarded as punitive rather than as compensatory. Um, but if it were regarded as exempt because it compensated for personal losses, it would fall precisely within the Brooklyn Savings holding that precludes prejudgment interest. There are two steps involved in applying this statute, as there are in almost every tax statute that uh, provides an exclusion from income. Uh, Because such statutes have to be narrowly construed, the transaction has to meet both the form and the substance that Congress describes. The form of such a transaction in this context is the nature of the claim, the Threlkeld test. The Court went beyond the form of the claim in Burke and said it also has to meet the substance of the statute. It has to provide remedies for the personal components of the loss, because otherwise, if it just compensates for the economic components, it doesn't fall within the the scope of the statute as it should be strictly construed. Uh, That is the sum and substance of the uh, Internal Revenue Service's position. I disagree, and our brief reflects the fact that uh, we disagree with the respondent about whether we've been inconsistent. I think that our brief, I'll have to rely on it for that. Uh, But I do want to point out specifically that since 1972, uh, in rulings involving uh, what was then Title VII provisions and FLSA provisions, uh, the service ruled that if the statutory remedy only provides back wages and an equal amount of liquidated damages and doesn't compensate for the personal components, then it's not a recovery on account of personal injuries. It's not a tort-like remedy within the meaning of the regulation or the statute. May I ask one question? What is, the, what is the service position for recovery in a tort of somebody driving somebody out of business? Predatory contract, damages are totally economic. Well, as you've described it, I'm confident that our position would be that it is an economic recovery. Um, but I'm, I'm, not, okay. I'm not sure that I can think of an exam, a ruling on that point. Thank you, Mr. Jones. The case is submitted.